Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have another Professor Kozlowski characteristically over-ambitious project. Uh, we have to talk about Foucault's discussion of the history of sexuality, the opening to his, his history of sexuality project, and we have to contextualize that in the greater scheme of how we talk about history and what we are doing when we study the history of philosophy. Um, so, let's get to work. Um, first off, we definitely have to talk about what Foucault is actually saying in his history of sexuality, um, because, you know, this is our first major philosophy text, and while it is recent, like, it's uncharacteristically recent for the stuff that I tend to teach, honestly, uh, Foucault wrote primarily in the 1970s and 1980s, so that makes him practically our next-door neighbor in terms of historical, philosophical discussion. Um, he is very recent, and very significant in his own right. Um, but I want specifically to look at what conclusions he's coming to and how he's coming to those conclusions, what he is doing, um, because that's very much going to inform us going forward. Uh, but like I said, let's sort of track what he's actually up to here in his, these two articles, uh, We Other Victorians and the Repressive Hypothesis. Um, just a side note, uh, Foucault himself undertook this project fairly late in his career. Um, Foucault was famous for doing this kind of work with a lot of different subjects. Before he embarked on the history of sexuality, he uh, wrote a book called Madness and Civilization, which was all about how like the development of sort of insanity, um, not so much like how people go crazy, but rather how we diagnose insanity and how that has changed, especially throughout the modern period. How the sort of accusation that you are not right in the head, that you are insane, that you are, you know, out of touch with what is real or what is appropriate behavior is in fact a tool of society for sort of establishing what it thinks itself as being as well as sort of enforcing its social norms on people. Insanity is a tool of power, is what Foucault is, is saying here. And this is kind of a common thread among Foucault's thought. Um, he is looking at the way that power expresses itself, and not specifically in the way that like laws change, or the way that governments change, or any of the ways that we usually think of power expressing itself. Rather, Foucault understands power to be something more insidious than that. Um, and even saying insidious is not entirely fair. Foucault is not normative when he talks about power. He is interested in power as a neutral phenomenon, as something that just exists and is sort of like hard-coded into the nature of human beings just by virtue of the fact that there are power imbalances between human beings. Um, and Foucault stresses not all power imbalances are bad. Um, he frequently uses the example of like the student and the teacher as a positive power imbalance. Like, I have knowledge, I give you that knowledge, therefore you, you know, sit quietly and listen to me because I have this thing that I'm going to give you and make you better with. Um, for Foucault, these power imbalances don't necessarily yield, like, misuse, injustice. Um, instead, he's just trying to describe them, not prescribe them. It usually comes off as pretty 
pretty downer, like uh, in the article by Rorty, The Historiography of Philosophy, which we'll discuss a little bit later in the class, even though we didn't read it, um, he tends to characterize Foucault's philosophy as being sort of pessimistic, sort of grim. Um, that, you know, Foucault will spend pages and pages talking about sort of the development of these ideas through the modern period, and then we're sort of walking away from the text thinking to ourselves, wow, we're really awful to people all of the time. Um, and I think that that's somewhat fair, but also not exactly what Foucault is doing here. I think we are inclined to see these things as negative, that just because we understand power in terms of this you know, injustice, this abuse, um, that we're inclined to see it where it doesn't necessarily belong, where Foucault is not quite ready to, to say that. Um, the other book that really sort of connects to what we're talking about today with the history of sexuality uh, was, um, oh man, I actually forget the title of it, Discipline and Punish. Yes, uh, Discipline and Punish was his book on the prison systems and just the whole business of enforcing the law. Um, and in it, he did come to some fairly negative conclusions, as I recall, um, just because he's ultimately talking about how, like, the system of incarceration was never designed to actually solve anything. Um, it, it is, you know, when you think of, like, the, the frequency of repeat offenders or the way that sort of crime and criminals is sort of subjected to its own separation from normal society. What he's ultimately arguing here is that the prisons are not meant to reform anyone. They're meant to just keep them out of society, to basically foster and create a criminal underclass that we can then, you know, disregard um, in our day-to-day -day life. It doesn't solve crime, it just partitions it somewhere where it won't hurt people who are significant, by which he means like the bourgeois and, and rich people. Um, as long as the poor are eating themselves, everything is fine, is kind of the way that it's being discussed here. Um, the reason why I bring up both of these is not only to give you sort of an idea of the trajectory of Foucault's thought, because it does, you know, recur from text to text, from project to project, but also to sort of illuminate his method and, and kind of show that this, this discussion of the history of sexuality exists in a context in its own right. Like, yes, this is an independent project, and I'm sure Foucault would consider it an independent project. Like, usually every time he wrote one of these books, it was preceded by him, you know, teaching a graduate class, like a, a seminar, with the same students from year to year to year, just discussing it endlessly for, for years, looking at research, you know, bringing up other potential subjects that might be connected to it, trying to get at the heart of what was going on in this historical period at this time, in order to appreciate the changes that were occurring and the sort of aim and, and direction that uh, these changes sort of fostered. So when we're talking about the history of sexuality here and Foucault comes guns blazing against the sort of traditional understanding of sexuality as repressed, um, it's largely within this context. Like Foucault has taken on projects like this before. He has widely examined the penal system. He has seen examples of, quote, sexual deviancy both being treated as insanity and madness and civilization and as criminality and discipline and punish. Here, however, he's turning his attention to the act of sexuality itself. How does our culture understand sexuality? How has that changed, especially in the modern period? Um, now, the actual project, like the overarching project, had a much bigger scope than we're seeing here. Um, Foucault ended up 
like after writing his first volume where both of these articles are sort of taken from he very much started exploring like ancient greek sexuality and classical sexuality like how christianity affected the sort of trajectory of sexuality um and we'll talk about that later in the semester like i've got a i've got i think one excerpt and one sort of uh discussion an interview that he had at one point where he was talking about the aims of the book just because the book is huge and there's a lot going on in there and it's kind of difficult to pick out passages um ultimately i think there are three volumes in the history of sexuality and then foucault died of aids because it was the 80s and foucault was gay um so a bit of a tragic ending and very much an uncompleted project uh but what what we are talking about here like what we are doing in our class is very much looking at love and friendship through this lens of how each historical period has sort of observed and examined these things and in some sense we have the harder job i think like foucault is looking at sexuality which is ad admittedly kind of like a weird thing to talk about it is a difficult subject to address because so much of society is uncomfortable talking about it and we're not 100 honest about our relationship to sexuality but it is at the very least concrete like you know all of these divergent sexualities as he seems to be describing them here they are pretty obvious and pretty you know clearly delineated like there is a physical act associated with them we have a correspondence theory that we can work with whereas love is much fuzzier um, but I think it is significant to start our conversation with sexuality. Um, not just because, you know, it's sexy and exciting and it will get me clicks, um, or whatever the classroom equivalent is, like it will make my students excited to learn more about what we are talking about in this class, um, but also because it is very clearly related. Um, like we discussed in the, the last lecture, or whatever that was, where I was just ranting at a wall for an hour and 40 minutes about what I thought sexuality was and wasn't, um, I recognize the fact that, especially in our culture, it is very thoroughly bound together. We cannot talk about love without eventually talking about sexuality, so we might as well just get it out of the way first, I think. Um, and then hopefully, once we have, discussed it into oblivion, as Foucault seems to suggest might be the case here. Um, maybe then we can, like, get on with it and actually have a fairly mature discussion about how relationships work both in and outside of the sexual bond. Um, so at any rate, we do have to talk about this. They are very in intimately related, and most importantly for our purposes, um, I am... Alright, so let's level here. So, when I inherited this class from, from Dr. Roy, uh, he had kind of two two projects that i had a little bit of frustration with which is not to say that i thought that he was wrong to teach them just they don't fit my style um and i was fairly quick to excise them from the curriculum um first off the first thing that he had students read was this essay that i mentioned the historiography of philosophy for genres by richard rorty and it's a heck of an article like i read it it's great um i'm really looking forward to talking about it later in the class today um i'm definitely looking forward to using it as a sort of scheme for our discussion but i also didn't want you to read it um not because i'm like hiding it from you i mean go ahead track it down you're welcome to read it i might even include it as an optional reading for this class um but it's 30 pages of what is basically like Rorty talking about 
how philosophy is conducted in his own time. Like, doing a sort of survey of philosophers engaged in sort of looking at the scope of philosophy and trying to, to characterize it. And that means that he's name-dropping all over the place. And assuming that this is, in fact, your first philosophy class, which it's kind of designed to be, I imagine that 99% of those names are going to mean nothing to you, and that means that a good 60% of this essay is going to mean nothing to you. That it's just Rorty, you know, citing examples that any, you know, colleague of his would absolutely recognize in a moment and immediately know what he's talking about, but doesn't really suit first semester philosophy students, I think. Um, and part of this is personal. Like, I definitely had a class in seminary where I had a professor do the exact same thing to us. Um, the class was on premillennial dispensationalism, which, yes, I was grumpy about before and will be grumpy about again. Um, it was a fine class. I'm just a whiner. Um, but he taught this book that was basically, like, the title of the book was Premillennial Dispensationalism. It was written by, like, one of the foremost scholars in the field, but it was very much a line-drawing book. Like... Rather than being a summary of what do premillennial dispensationalists believe, it was like, this is the only kind of premillennial dispensationalists, and everyone who believes anything even remotely separate is not the same thing. Like, it's a house-cleaning book for uh, all the people who live in that house. And I did not live in that house. I was, you know, a visitor in this house, trying to learn how this house worked. And it's like... It's like if you walk into a baseball game and you go planning to see, you know, like, people play baseball, and the guy sitting next to you is constantly talking to you about the mechanics of, like, how the manager is specifically, you know, creating this particular strategy, and you're like, dude... I just want to see the guy hit the ball and run around the bases. Like, I'm not here for that. I, I want a popcorn, and I want a beer, and, like, that's the experience I'm looking for. I do not need to understand your fantasy baseball league selections. Um, like, sure, if you've gone to many baseball games before, that's super helpful. Like, by all means, you can have these in involved conversations about, like, the, the politics behind the scene or, you know, what the owner's influence on the manager might be. Like, there's a lot of cool conversations to be had there. But if you're just walking in for the first time, you really don't want that conversation. Um, Rorty is that guy. Rorty is absolutely that guy. Rorty is absolutely tracking, like, oh, this philosopher is doing this kind of thing, and I don't like it, and as a result, like, I'm, I'm going to consign it to this category, and, you know, this philosopher is doing this project, and this is useful, but it's useful in this very specific way. And it's like, okay. Um, so we're going to talk about that, but we're going to dismiss the, the sort of inside baseball discussion. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about here and sort of stress... When, because we're talking about Foucault and why I sort of added him to the curriculum, um, the other thing that I excised from Dr. Roy's curriculum was he had students frequently read this book called Love, a History by Simon May. Um, and Love, a History by Simon May is a perfectly decent philosophy book that does exactly what our class is going to do. Um, it looks at various moments in philosophy, and it examines, you know, what is going on in that moment, what these various important philosophers thought about love in that time, and characterizes how, over history, that perspective has changed. Um, now, May, his object is to make his own point. He is ultimately arguing that all of this 
philosophical discussion basically yields one central understanding of love, namely that love is what he calls ontological rootedness. By seeking out love, by loving people, what we are looking for is someone to invest ourselves in so much that we feel powerful or significant or grounded in a sort of Heideggerian sense. We feel like we are connected to the universe through this other person. Um, that's what he means by ontological rootedness. And I disagree with this on a number of different levels, not just insofar as, like, when I love people, I don't think that's what I'm looking for, but also, like, on a more grand level, I really don't think that's what so many of the texts that he's dealing with are actually talking about. Like, he makes his own compelling argument, and it's great and stuff, but, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't want you to read that. Largely because, again, I disagree, but also because I... Like, we're doing that. That's our class. That is what we are supposed to do. I don't want you to be looking at the cheat sheet while we're going, and I definitely don't want the cheat sheet to influence the way that you're thinking about these things. Um, so, rather than give you, you know, this long, involved book that we're going to read from multiple times over the course of the class, I decided that perhaps the best move was instead to compress that part of the class into just, like, one or two class sessions. Let's talk about Foucault instead, because Foucault is doing roughly the same work. He is, you know, compressing the entire history of philosophy into one fairly consistent, fairly cogent narrative with its own point that he's sort of like plucking out from very rigorous, very careful observation of what has gone before. But he's also doing it first off about sexuality and not love, which means that we can see his method from a certain amount of distance. Um, since sexuality isn't the same thing as love, since it is only tangentially related to what we are talking about in this class, we can successfully examine it, accept his ideas if we want to, and yet still be kind of required to build our overarching theory about love as a separate activity altogether. Um, but secondarily, since he's presenting it in a much more compact way, we can you know, present the entire project in one class session, namely today. Um, and then we can talk about it, we can dissect it. Whereas with May, it would take us literally weeks to get through the entire book and sort of appreciate everything that he's doing and then be able to make our decision, you know, do we accept what his conclusions, do we accept his interpretation, or do we not? Um, so that's a lot of the reason why I'm including Foucault here. Foucault has all the advantages of May's book with none of the disadvantages. We're looking at it from a more bite-sized, you know, one-class discussion perspective. And also, he is a great model of what Rorty is suggesting as the act of historiography. Um, so that's a large part of the reason why I'm including this book in this class. That's, you know, maybe more than you needed to know. But it also, I hope, informs the way that you understand the book in the context of the class and why and how we're reading it. Um, but enough fanfare, let's actually talk about Foucault's conclusions. Um, notice that Foucault is also sort of, he is not just engaging in historiography, he is not just sort of characterizing the history of sexuality for his own polemical purposes, but he's also responding to what he sees as a pre-existing characterization. Um, to put it kind of more in layman's terms, Foucault sees that we as a culture have told ourselves a story about sexuality. 
and Foucault is not sure that that story is true and wants to respond by telling his own story. Um, that's what he's doing. Um, Wordy calls this Geschichtigrist, or no, I'm going to horribly pronounce this. Um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Geistergeschichte. There it is. I know German. I totally don't know German. But Geistergeschichte is what he calls it. We in the Continental School tend to just refer to this as phenomenology. Um, the actual word is more like spirit tracking or something, but it's very much a Hegelian thing. Um, Geistergeschichte is you're telling this story of the sort of trajectory of human experience, the trajectory of human history, um, with an idea of sort of presenting it as a story. Presenting it as though, you know, there's a beginning, and this is the beginning, and here is where we're here is where we are positioned at the beginning, and here is how it changes over time, and then here is the conclusion, which is where we are now, and this is how we've gotten where we are. Um, and Rorty is generally in favor of Geistergeschichte, we'll, we'll talk about that more, but he has his, his sort of doubts. Um, so what Foucault is doing is Geistergeschichte, he is doing a sort of quasi-phenomenology, but it is a phenomenology in reaction to a pre-existing phenomenology, one that sort of just got spat up by human culture. Specifically, this idea of Victorian repression. Um, in Foucault's time, and indeed in ours as well, although I think we've sublimated it to the point that we couldn't tell you what the historical motivations were, just that this is what happened. Um, his story is basically, okay, once upon a time, we were all wild and free, living happy, wonderful, exciting sexual lives, and then all those mean old Victorians showed up through Enlightenment philosophy into the 19th century, and they took all our fun times away, and they made us totally, like, sexless for hundreds of years, and totally repressed us all the time. And now, fortunately, since the 1960s, those blessed individuals engaged in the sexual revolution have been slowly fighting back the power and relieving us of this repressive regime. And now, only now, here in the 70s and 80s, are we finally throwing off the, that, those repressive shackles, those Victorian ideals, and we are finally getting back to the state of nature. And Foucault is like, that's bullshit. That's just so much bullshit. If you think I'm making this up, feel free to just look at the very beginning of We Other Victorians. Um, you know, the very first couple of pages of the reading today. He, he characterizes it literally in this way. At the beginning of the 17th century, a certain frankness was still common, it would seem. Sexual practices had little need of secrecy. Words were said without undue reticence, and things were done without too much concealment. One had a tolerant familiarity with the illicit. But, as he goes down in the next paragraph, twilight soon fell upon this bright day, followed by the monotonous nights of the Victorian bourgeoisie. Sexuality was carefully confined and moved into the home. The conjugal family took custody of it and absorbed it into the serious function of reproduction. On the subject of sex, silence became the rule. The legitimate and procreative couple laid down the law. The couple imposed itself as model, enforced the norm, safeguarded the truth, and reserved the right to speak while retaining the principle of secrecy. A single locus of sexuality was acknowledged in social space as well as at the heart of every household, but it was a utilitarian and fertile one, the parents' bedroom. So what Foucault is saying here is he's not presenting his own opinion, he's characterizing the story as it is being told at this point. The way that academics at this point in history, in the 1980s, tend to understand the history of sexuality. 
once it was great, back in the medieval period, like, everyone was free to do whatever the heck they wanted, whatever the heck they wanted to, and then all those darn Enlightenment philosophers and all those darn Victorians showed up and took our fun away, and now, it, here in the 20th century, we have to fight back against the power. Um, and this is the story that we're kind of dealing with. And I imagine that it's a story that sounds kind of familiar, um, maybe not with exactly those ideas in mind, like maybe we don't have, you know, this specific understanding of like Enlightenment philosophy in the 18th century and Victorian thinking in the 19th century as being the harbingers of sexual repression. Um, but I imagine that all of us in this class and beyond have this sort of vague notion that like things used to be really repressed and grim and people used to not be able to talk about their sexuality and people had to hide their sexuality and like the only acceptable way to have sex was in the, you know, in the family, in the master bedroom as Foucault is talking about it here, like only between a husband and wife, only a heterosexual couple and so on and so forth. And, you know, since the 60s, thank God for those sexual liberators, thanks God for those hippies, or heck, more recently since, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the gay rights movement, Stonewall, like, since all of these various activists have been active, since the internet has come down and provided safe spaces for the gay community or for the trans community, now, only here in the 21st century, are we actually starting to liberate ourselves from, you know, gender conformity or sexual normativity. Um, and... As much as Foucault did not live to see all of these new and wild things that have happened since the internet, I don't think he'd be terribly impressed. It's the same story. Um, same shit, different day, so to speak. Um, and again, Foucault is fighting against this story, this idea that we are, you know, liberating ourselves through the sexual revolution, fighting back against Victorian repression. Um, not that that's not happening. Like, Foucault is pretty quick to stress, you know, we think there probably is some degree of repression happening, but we need to understand it better. We need to actually look at what's happening, the transitions that are occurring, the way that discourse about sex has changed over the last three to four hundred years, and we need to understand what the effects of that discussion have had on us. Um, the fact of the matter is, here in the 21st century, we are talking a lot more about sex. Um, but, as Foucault is pointing out, in the 19th century, people were talking a lot about sex. Um, and in fact, the sort of primary evidence that he's raising up against this, you know, Victorian repressive hypothesis, this idea that the story of sexuality is, you know, first it was good, then it was bad, now it's good again, is basically, no. Like, the 19th century was talking about sex all of the time, and that was a tool of control, of power. Now remember, Foucault doesn't necessarily have a normative attitude against power. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, present him as though, and the man wants you to talk about sex. Like, I don't know what the man wants. I don't think Foucault believes in the man in any real sense. Power exists at all levels of society for Foucault. Um, it's not something that is just located in white buildings on Capitol Hill. Like, it's all around us all of the time. It very much characterizes our reactions to power structures as much as it is power structures themselves. Um, so be careful to sort of not, like, jump to either of those conclusions. 
Um, but let's see how he pushes back against this repressive hypothesis, so to speak. Um, let's sh talk about like what he is showing us, and for that matter, how he is doing it. Um, so notice again, like in this "We Other Victorians" passage, uh, he, you know, he is presenting this argument that essentially, like, he wants to change the question. He wants to change how we talk about this stuff, how we talk about our history of sexuality, how we talk about, you know, the trajectory that we have taken. Um, he wants us to be a little bit more discerning than just, you know, good sex, bad sex, good sex. Or, you know, like, repression is just this omnipresent force imposed on us from some mysterious other, from, you know, higher up the power chain, whatever that may be, and that forces us to, you know, be quiet and not actually talk about sexuality. Um, instead, as you can see on what is page 297 on the PDF, um, the paragraph there, briefly, my aim is to examine the case of a society which has been loudly castigating itself for its hypocrisy for more than a century, which speaks verbosely of its own silence, takes great pains to relate in detail the things it does not say, denounces the powers it exercises, and promises to liberate itself from the very laws that have made it function. I would like to explore not only these discourses, but also the will that sustains them and the strategic intention that supports them. The question I would like to pose is not, why are we repressed, but rather, why do we say, with so much passion and so much resentment against our most recent past, against our present, and against ourselves, that we are repressed? By what spiral did we come to affirm that sex is negated? What led us to show, ostentatiously, that sex is something we hide, to say it is something we silence? Notice the way that he's talking about it here. Like, there's a lot to unpack from this first half of the paragraph, but what he's stressing, this verbose speaking of its own silence, takes great pains to relate the things it does not say. Like, there's a sort of weird two-sidedness to what's going on here, a kind of insanity, a schizophrenia almost. Um, where, you know, one half of our society is apparently, we think, saying, don't do that, don't have sex, don't be liberated. And we, we lucky few, are those who are fighting back against the power, fighting back against the conservative agenda, and saying in no uncertain terms, no, we will have sex, we will take our sexuality back. But if we're so freaking proud of this, Foucault is pointing out, doesn't that seem kind of weird? Like, are we fighting against a shadow enemy here? And I'm not trying to pose this in terms of like a conservative versus liberal, you know, conservative progressive distinction. And I definitely want to do not want to sort of frame this in the kind of contemporary Republican versus Democrat in America thing. Foucault certainly isn't. He was a French dude. He was talking, you know, if he has a bias, it's a bias towards French politics and French history, um, which we'll see. Like, more frequently than not, he's going to be pulling on, like, French historical documents, which is actually really convenient because France was the center of culture and was the center of, like, world, you know, world ideas about sexuality in the 18th and 19th centuries especially. It was very much the center of Europe in a, in a way of speaking. Um, whereas America, of course, didn't have nearly as robust a cultural influence on, quote, the West at that time. But we're already getting 
way out of bounds here. Um, what I want to emphasize instead, like, whatever is going on with the whole Democrat-Republican thing, Foucault is talking about a much greater scope. Like, yes, there are definitely elements in contemporary political discourse that read as repression, the way that Foucault seems to be sort of dismissing it here. There are absolutely pushes to sort of, like, keep a, what is frequently sort of recognized as deviant or abnormal sexuality out of the public sphere, away from those sensitive children's eyes. Um, which, yes, I suspect that fighting back against that is kind of unquestionably fighting back against a sort of repression. But notice, too, that Foucault is not characterizing repression the way that we usually characterize repression. Like, when we talk about, you know, repression as keeping ourselves, like, locked up, preventing, you know, people from properly expressing themselves, Foucault is actually more interested in how we understand that relationship. Like, why are we so grumpy about this thing that supposedly exists, but in Foucault's own experience really doesn't? Like, where is the repression, Foucault seems to be asking, and why are we so upset about it, and why are we so pleased with ourselves for pushing back against it? Um, as, you know, Foucault sort of gets going, as he's sort of explaining and, and uh, like, getting at his concerns about this understanding of repression, um, you'll notice on page 298 he raises his three doubts. First off, is sexual repression truly an established historical fact? Like, is this in fact a thing that exists? Second, do the workings of power, in particular those mechanisms that are brought into play in societies such as ours, really belong primarily to the category of repression? Like, is repression really the problem? Um, a, does repression exist? B, is it really repression that we're, we should be most frightened or most scared of? And third, did the critical discourse that addresses itself to repression come to act as a roadblock to power mechanism that had operated unchallenged up to that point, or is it not in fact part of the same historical network as the thing it denounces and doubtless misrepresents by calling it repression? In short, is repression a smokescreen? Like, are we fighting against this boogeyman, strawman figure, which in fact is sort of set up for us to focus our attention on, rather than concentrating on the actual ways that power and uh, control are sort of affecting and influencing our lives? Are we saying, fight the repression and marching in great legions when in fact the real enemy is behind us, or in our ranks for that matter? Is the fight against repression a tool of power as opposed to a weapon against power? Um, and Foucault is deft about this. Like, notice that, you know, Foucault is not deliberately, like, confronting himself, posing himself against the repression and falling into that same dichotomy. Like, do we want to be repressed or do we not want to be repressed? In fact, what Foucault is saying is, if we are given this binary, do we want to be repressed or do we not want to be repressed, it's kind of stupidly obvious what the answer is. Of course nobody wants to be repressed. Like, repression is framed as this negative thing, like, and always has been. It has always been the boogeyman. It has always been the enemy of sexuality. It has always been the enemy of good health. What Foucault is asking is, 
are we fighting a battle that doesn't exist? Are we fighting an enemy that isn't real? And that fake enemy is just a blind, just a way for the actual power structures at play to operate unchallenged, to operate without our knowledge. Um, and notice again that if we apply this to our contemporary perspective, it should raise some fairly interesting questions. It should bring us to question the way that we understand, again, our Republican versus Democrat discourse. If we are upset because we are being repressed, that ignores all of the sort of like complicated social phenomena, the, the sort of social forces at play that are in fact contributing to power and control beyond just the scope of repression. What if it is true, not that Republicans want to repress Democrats, but rather Republicans want Democrats to express themselves, want them to come out into the open, specifically so they can be controlled, boxed up, manipulated, you know, separated from one another, dissected, explained into oblivion, or just merely categorized and gotten out of the way. Like, the question here isn't, you know, should we be fighting against to get fighting back against power structures like for Foucault that's just a way that humans are like push back and forth against power is just one of the basic functions of power so to speak um, but rather like what is this way that the conversation is being framed doing to us like if this is merely a pro versus contra sexual discussion, then yes, everybody is on the pro side. Like, the human race will die off if we are all repressed to the point that we are no longer comfortable having sex. Just period. So obviously that is a zero-sum, like, nobody wins sort of scenario. Um, better yet, why, should, why shouldn't we question the question? Not, are we being repressed? But who is benefiting from the idea that we think that we're repressed? Why do we think we are repressed? Why do we get so much pleasure out of thinking we are fighting repression? Um, to look at page 299, uh, the doubts I would like to oppose to the repressive hypothesis are aimed less at showing it to be mistaken than at putting it back within a general economy of discourses on sex in modern societies since the 17th century. Why has sexuality been so widely discussed and what has been said about it? What were the effects of power generated by what was said? What are the links between these discourses, these effects of power, and the pleasures that were invested by them? What knowledge, savoir, this is the French term, there's like book knowledge versus familiarity, like if you know somebody, um, this is book knowledge. What book knowledge, savoir, was formed as a result of this linkage? The object, in short, is to define the regime of power, knowledge, pleasure that sustains the discourse on human sexuality in our part of the world. The central issue, then, at least in the first instance, is not to determine whether one says yes or no to sex, whether one formulates prohibitions or permissions, whether one asserts its importance or denies its effects, or whether one refines the words used to one uses to designate it, but to account for the fact that it is spoken about, to discover who does the speaking, the positions and viewpoints from which they speak, the institutions which prompt people to speak about it, and which store and distribute the things that are said. What is at issue briefly is the overall discursive fact, the way in which sex is put into discourse. 
We are not going to frame this as repression versus unrepressed. What he, Foucault is interested in looking at is how do we talk about sex and how does that tie into power structures? How does the knowledge that you get from talking about sex tie into power structures? And in the repressive hypothesis, this is exactly what he is focusing on. He is stressing not that we, you know, in the 18th century, as the story goes, suddenly got repressed and then nobody is talking about sex because it's, you know, verboten, it's off limits. Now, instead, Foucault is saying, actually look at what's being said in the 18th and 19th century. There is a veritable explosion of discussion about sexuality. It's just new. It's different. It is formalized. It is, you know, in academics institutions and in bureaucratic institutions. People are interested in sex in a way that they haven't been before. That what used to be the way that sex was discussed and, and confronted, apparently undocumented for the most part, has now become rigorously documented, rigorously tracked, rigorously identified, and endlessly discussed. And it is now the business of the state, the business of psychological institutions, the business of academic institutions, to talk about sex endlessly, circuitously, in these spirals that he's describing. What Foucault is saying is the story of repression says once upon a time we talked about sex and then we stopped, and Foucault is saying that story is wrong. Once upon a time we didn't talk about sex and then we really started. Or rather, once upon a time we talked about sex in one way, at home, purse privately, using sort of vulgar jokes and laughing about it into our sleeves, or rather laughing about it into the broad air. And now, in the 19th and 18th centuries, instead of talking about it casually, informally, with friends or with parents or, you know, with one another, joking and laughing and making light of it, now it's deadly serious. Now we are talking about it specifically because it is deadly serious, because it is so important that we have to dissect and analyze and examine every tiny nuance of sexuality. Now notice the way that this transition occurs, according to Foucault in the repressive hypothesis. We start with the 17th century, the 16th century, like our very early starting point here of the story that Foucault is telling us rather than the story that Foucault is reacting to is largely with confession. He's looking at the Christian institution of confession. Um, this is the primary place that sex is discussed, at least formally. Like, he assumes that people are talking about it on the streets and in back alleys and at home, like that there is a certain amount of familiarity to the discussion of sex, but the only stuff that we have documented, the only stuff that it is, you know, sitting in books and papers is primarily these confession manuals of the Middle Ages. So if you look at page 302, um, Consider the evolution of the Catholic pastoral and the sacrament of penance, namely confession, after the Council of Trent. Little by little, the nakedness of the questions formulated by the confession manuals of the Middle Ages and a good number of those still in use in the 17th century was veiled. Notice the emphasis that he's making here throughout this whole passage. Once upon a time, it was not like Christianity was stepping on sexuality. On the contrary, in the confession, people were encouraged to talk about their sexuality. They were specifically told, you know, tell me about sex. 
Um, tell me about what sex you have conducted. Tell me about what acts you have performed. Specifically because, again, this is penance, this is confession. The priest is trying to absolve people of their sins. Now, it's undoubtedly no accident, no mistake, that the primary way that people are talking about sexuality in a formal environment is, in fact, in the sense of guilt and confession. Like, you have done wrong. But notice, too, that the confession, as this sort of Christian institution, has a completely different form from the institutions that Foucault is about to describe later on in this passage. Confession is private. Confession is totally confidential. There are literally three people involved in confession. You, the person who is confessing, the priest, who you are confessing to, and, if you believe you know, Catholic theology and everything that's sort of going into this, God. God is also clearly participating in this conversation, is holding you accountable for what has gone wrong, usually through whatever the priest, the priest prescribes. Um, as the Catholics understand confession at this point in history, at this point in theology, you go to confession, you confess your sins, and importantly, the priest gives you a penance, tells you what to do, and then you are forgiven. Like, it's done. We're over. You go, and you don't worry about it anymore. And if you do it again, you know, you just come back to confession, and everything's cool. Like... As much as this sort of frames sexuality as this evil thing that needs to be confessed, that needs to be purged, that needs to be sort of gotten off of your chest, it also does so with very little consequences. Like, yes, there are definitely major events in, in medieval history where, like, people who were, were guilty of what is considered an abomination of God, be it sodomy or adultery or whatever, they are condemned for having committed a mortal sin, and bam, now they are just doomed, and, like, their eternal soul is damned, and they are just outcast from society. This does happen. But what Foucault is suggesting is that it was probably the vast minority of cases. More often than not, your basic general run-of-the-mill indiscretions, be they, you know, acts of fornication or if they were, you know, transgressions of, of typical heteronormative sexuality, whatever they were, the priest was probably going to just, you know, forgive you and move on. And that was it. The confession was meant to be sacred and confidential. Um, it was not meant to be public. You, whatever you said in confession stayed in confession, remained between you, the priest, and God. The priest was obliged by his office not to tell anyone. By contrast, notice that the change that Foucault is pointing to here after the Council of Trent, so this is post-Protestant Reformation, Luther has already kicked open the, the can of worms that, you know, all of that involves. <laughs> can of worms. <laughs> it's a history joke. Um... We are now in a fight for our very survival, and Catholics are starting to change their attitudes. The Council of Trent was the Counter-Reformation answer to Luther's Protestant Reformation. This is where the Catholic Church said, okay, we believe this in contradistinction to Luther, and we are going to, if anything, tighten our rules and make sure that we do not tolerate heresy. Like, the Council of Trent will be the preceding factor to major deals in the Spanish Inquisition. It will be the beginning of the Jesuit order, which isn't a bad thing. Like, Jesuits are actually pretty cool people in my experience. But it changes fundamentally the way that a lot of Catholic traditions have operated. Most notably, Foucault is pointing out, by the way that the confession manual has changed. 
In the Middle Ages, priests were encouraged during confession to draw out the details. Tell me about your sexual sin. Tell me about what you committed, what you did, every caress, every touch, every act. How many times did you and the other person come? Like, these are the sorts of details that the priests are actually interested in. By contrast, now Foucault is saying that these discussions and questions are veiled. Instead, we are, rather than focusing on the act itself, the sin itself, look on page 303, while the language may have been refined, the scope of the confession, the confession of the flesh, continually increased. This was partly because the Counter-Reformation busied itself with stepping up the rhythm of the yearly confession in the Catholic countries, and because it tried to impose meticulous rules of self-examination. But above all, because it attributed more and more importance in penance, and perhaps at the expense of some other sins, to all the insinuations of the flesh, thoughts, desires, voluptuous imaginings, delectations, combined movements of the body and soul, henceforth all this had to enter, in detail, into the process of confession and guidance. According to the new pastoral, sex must not be named imprudently, but its aspects, its correlations, and its effects must be pursued down to their slenderest ramifications, a shadow in a daydream, an image too slowly dispelled, a badly exercised complicity between the body's mechanics and the mind's complacency. Everything had to be told. A twofold evolution tended to make the flesh into the root of all evil, shifting the most important moment of transgression from the act itself to the stirrings, so difficult to perceive and formulate, of desire. Notice the emphasis here. There's this sort of twofold moment, this twofold movement happening in the 16th and 17th century as a result of the Council of Trent. On the one hand, priests are no longer asking for explicit details about the sexual act itself. Once upon a time, you went into a confession and they asked you, how many times did you come? Now that is imprudent, not tactful. We can't talk about that. But instead, the focus is now on, tell me every tiny little detail about why you wanted this person, about what made you want this person, about why you didn't stop it fast enough, about how your mind kept coming back to this person. Now this is not totally abnormal to Christianity. As Foucault emphasizes, this is something that's been happening in monasteries for centuries at this point. Um, mon monks and priests have, well, priests less so, monks for literally over a millennia at this point have been practicing celibacy. They do not have sex. When you live in a monastery, you swear off all connections to the outside world, both financial in many cases, as well as sexual. Like, it is absolutely, totally, 100%, no questions forbidden for monks to have sex. And as a consequence, a great deal of time and energy and writing is spent on sort of governing monks' sexuality, training them to not masturbate, training them to not, you know, feel desire for other people, male or female. And again, homosexuality did frequently inhabit these monasteries. I'm not going to deny that that was the case. And in fact, that's a lot of what's being fought against. Um, but it was restricted there. This prescription of, like, the monks gradually and more and more sort of feeds out into the rest of Catholic Christendom at large. Um, and I believe the 13th century, that's actually the first time that priests were required to be celibate. 
like up until the 13th century, priests were allowed to you know marry, have kids. There, there were even like in the eighth and ninth centuries a whole bunch of priests that were like built a family empire out of a popedom. Um, so like there's all this backstabbing and like it's basically like kingship where you know the king has like a legitimate and illegitimate son and then like the illegitimate son kills the son and it's a whole thing it's a giant mess and that's part of the reason why the monks kind of insisted that maybe we should do this for the pope and the priests as well um, but up until then it was just the monks so this is a fairly recent development but what's notable here is the monks and the monastic attitude is infiltrating now not just the priesthood, not just the clergy, but the laity as well. Everybody is supposed to practice this sort of severe mental self-discipline. Now we are not interrogating what act did you perform, but rather why did you want to perform the act. Let us cut out sexuality at its very root, which is different. Um, and that's what Foucault is pointing to here. This is the beginning of the story he is telling. This is the beginning of the change that he observes. And it quickly moves out from just like Catholic confession to the secular world at large. So he points on page 304 and 305 to several examples how the playwrights are now stressing, you know, tell everything the directors would say time and time again, not only consummated acts, but sensual touchings, all impure gazes, all obscene remarks, all consenting thoughts. The Marquis de Sade takes up the injunction in words that seem to have been retranscribed from the treaties of, treatises of spiritual direction. Your narrations must be decorated with the most numerous and searching details, the precise way and extent to which we may judge how the passion you describe relates to human manners and man character is determined by your willingness to disguise no circumstance and then we again we have this really great example of this apparently random British dude who wrote this book called my secret life which is apparently as Foucault describes it a scrupulous account of every one of his sexual episodes he sometimes excuses himself by stressing his concern to educate young people this man who had 11 volumes published in a printing of only a few copies which were devoted to the least adventures pleasures and sensations of his sex notice the transformation that's occurred here once upon a time not everybody was happy and com comfortable and content but rather once upon a time people didn't talk about sex they just did what they wanted now people are talking endlessly about sex and it is in fact both a part of the way that they are controlled and also a part of the way that they enjoy it because the guy who writes the 11 volume my secret life every single sexual escapade i have ever had in painstaking detail is obviously enjoying himself um like i think of the the joke that i was once told you know a guy walks into confession and he tells the priest father i had sex last night with two beautiful young women like far younger than myself totally independent of my wife and the father is like good grief sir like um do, do, what other depravities did you commit? And the, and the guy is like, dude, I, I'm not here to, to, you know, look for forgiveness. And the priest is like, wait, you're not looking for forgiveness? Then why did you why did you come to my confessional? And he's like, dude, I'm telling everybody. Like, it was great. And then he, like, runs out of the confessional. Um, notice that that's kind of the dynamic here. The assumption up until this point was you only talked about sexuality in such explicit detail when you went to confession specifically because it was this act of purgation, this sort of lifting off the, the burden of guilt that you had accumulated, um, the shame of doing this. And again, lifting it off is important here. 
By contrast, now the recitation, the sort of explanation, the putting into prose, the putting into print of every sexual action, of every desire, of every moment, is simultaneously how the priest now di like diagnoses your sinfulness, but it is also a sort of gluttony of sinfulness. It's an enjoyment of sinfulness. The two were inextricably linked. And notice, too, that this is fairly typical of sexuality. Like I talked about in the last lecture, there's a thrill in the forbiddenness of sex. There always has been. Like, for all of the efforts that we take to try and, you know, talk about sexuality and talk about how liberated we are and talk about, you know, how wonderfully free we are to express our sexuality in any number of ways, the fact of the matter is we want people to tell us it's wrong. That makes it more exciting. Like, in no uncertain terms. That's why there's this sort of push and pull, I think, between, you know, the forbiddenness of sexuality and the, the sort of acceptability of sexuality. We want to have forbidden sex. We don't, we want people to let us have forbidden sex. And that's the absurdity of it. Like, it's not forbidden if people are letting us have it. It's not exciting if it's not secret. But if it's not secret, then it's exciting. Like, it's really weird. And, you know, they're tied together in these ways. And I think Foucault is sort of pointing around this, sort of showing us the complexity here. But things get considerably trickier as we sort of proceed forward. Um, so notice on page 306, he says this technology might, or this technique might have remained tied to the destiny of Christian sp spirituality if it had not been supported and relayed by other mechanisms. So once this was all just Christianity doing its confession thing, and some people outside of Christianity picked up on it and made it sort of inform their art or inform their literature, which... I think is fair. Like, honestly, I have big questions now about, like, the whole 18th century development of the psychological novel as an art form and how much this might actually connect to the discussion of sexuality in the confessional and how it's changed the way that Foucault is describing it. But notice that Foucault is pointing not to sort of art and culture, but something a little bit more insidious. Toward the beginning of the 18th century, there emerged a political, economic, and technical incitement to talk about sex. And not so much in the form of a general theory of sexuality as in the form of analysis, stock-taking, classification, and specification of quantitative or casual studies. This need to take sex, quote, into account, to pronounce a discourse on sex that would not derive from morality alone, but from rationality as well, was sufficiently new that at first it wondered at itself and sought apologies for its own existence. How could a discourse based on reason speak of that? Rarely have philosophers directed a steady gaze to these objects situated between disgust and ridicule, where one must avoid both hypocrisy and scandal, he quotes. And nearly a century later, the medical establishment, which one might have expected to be less surprised by what it was about to formulate, still stumbled at the moment of speaking. The darkness that envelops these facts, the shame and disgust they inspire, have always repelled the observer's gaze. For a long time, I hesitated to introduce the loathsome picture into this study. Notice what Foucault is talking about here is there's this sort of reluctance to talk about sexuality because it is apparently low and sinful and base. But notice that at the same time as they're talking about it as being kind of wrong, it's emphasized not so much as being wrong, as being vulgar, between disgust and ridicule have repelled the observer's gaze 
gaze because of the shame and disgust they inspire, the loathsome picture into the study. It's something that everybody knows is happening, but nobody wants to talk about. Which sort of characterizes what it looked like before this moment in history, before the medical profession starts in detail talking about sexuality as this sort of scientific, sort of analytical enterprise. What Foucault will later call the science of sexuality, the arse sexual. Um, so instead, what he says is, what is essential is not in all these scruples, in the moralism they betray, or in the hypocrisy one can suspect them of, but in the recognized necessity of overcoming this hesitation. One had to speak of sex. One had to speak publicly and in a manner that was not determined by the division between licit and illicit, even if the speaker maintained the distinction for himself, which is what these solemn and preliminary declarations were intended to show. One had to speak of it as of a thing to be not simply condemned or tolerated, but managed, inserted into systems of utility, regulated for the greater good of all, made to function according to its optimum. Sex was not something one simply judged, it was a thing one administered. It was in the nature of a public potential. It called for management procedures. It had to be taken charge of by analytic discourses. In the 18th century, sex became a police matter. Not in the full and strict sense, given the term at the time, not the repression of disorder, but an ordered maximization of collective and individual forces. We must consolidate and augment, through the wisdom of its regulations, the internal power of the state, he quotes. And since this power consists not only in the Republic in general, and in each of the members who constitute it, but also in the faculties and talents of those belonging to it, it follows that the police must concern themselves with these means and make them serve the public welfare. And they can only obtain this result through the knowledge they have of those different assets. It's time to take stock of sex, in short. Foucault is saying that up until this point, sex was fairly confined. We talked about it at home, we talked about it in this vulgar way, we now talk about it in the confession, but we're getting a little bit more reluctant to talk about its explicit details, focusing instead on the motivations, making people confess not for the sin itself, but for the sinning that led up to the sin, the motivation, the mental thinking. There's this fundamental distinction originally between the act of sex and the desire for sex. Now that distinction is being swept away, and simultaneously, now the medical community, the police community, the administrative community, the, this becomes a function of power. It is time to stop the silence about sex. Instead, it's time to drag it, kicking and screaming, into the light of cold day. It is time to stop letting it hide, in short. And as a rule, we, sitting here in our 21st century, look back and it's like, yes, foray, we don't have to hide our sexuality anymore. But notice what hiding meant in this case and what not hiding means going forward. Hiding, at least before, meant freedom. Everyone looked the other way. It wasn't even so much a, a deliberate effort to hide as everyone just sort of being too uncomfortable to talk about it to actually do anything about it which meant there was a certain freedom, a certain liberation, a certain just openness about this. Yes, there was a conversation happening, and it was a fairly public conversation, but it was latrine conversation. It was locker room talk, so to speak. It was gross, and it was vulgar, and it was probably motivated by, you know, gross desire, but everyone just kind of was okay with it. Not locker room talk in the sense of, like, 
this is where things get complicated because um, we are very grumpy about locker room talk these days um, but all the same like there was an acceptedness to every sort of sexual deviation once upon a time for better or for worse um, there as a prop as a consequence probably was a lot of covering up of terrible behavior which is bad but there was also a lot of covering up of otherwise perfectly normal behavior. Stuff that we would consider normal today, anyway. Like, if there was a homosexual couple living in town, like, if, you know, a married man was sleeping with another man, everyone just kind of didn't talk about it. And nobody tell his wife. Like, we're just gonna kind of look the other way and let this happen and not impugn upon this man's good name. Yes, the priest knows about it, the priest has heard his confession, but he forgives him every time and the guy just goes about his business and, you know, eventually he just falls into the habit again. Maybe that's healthy, maybe that's not healthy. But what's changed is now that person cannot live that way. That luxury can no longer exist. Consider the example that he brings up on page 312 to 313, because I think it really captures the whole picture here. One day in 1867, a farmhand from the village of Lapcord, who was somewhat simple-minded, employed here than there, depending on the season, living hand-to-mouth from a little charity or in exchange for the worst sort of labor, sleeping in barns and stables, was turned into the authorities. At the border of a field, he had obtained a few caresses from a little girl, just as he had done before and seen done by the village urchins round about him. For, at the end of the wood, at the edge of the wood, or in the ditch by the road leading to St. Nicholas, they would play the familiar game called Curdled Milk. I have no idea what this game is. This was not something I was willing to look up. Sorry, folks. Feel free to Google this one on your own time if you were feeling particularly inquisitive. So he was pointed out by the girl's parents to the mayor of the village, reported by the mayor to the gendarmes, led by the gendarmes to the judge, who indicated, who indicted him and turned him over first to a doctor, then to two other experts who not only wrote their report, but also had it published. What is the significant thing about this story? The pettiness of it all. The fact that this everyday occurrence in the life of village sexuality, its inconsequential bucolic pleasures, could become, from a certain time, the object not only of a collective intolerance, but of a judicial action, a medical intervention, a careful clinical examination, and an entire theoretical elaboration. The thing to note is that they went so far as to measure the brain span, study the facial bone structure, and inspect for possible signs of degenerescence the anatomy of this personage who up to that moment had been an integral part of village life. That they made him talk, that they questioned him concerning his thoughts, inclinations, habits, sensations, and opinions, and then, acquitting him of any crime, they decided finally to make him into a pure object of medicine and knowledge, an object to be shut away till the end of his life in the hospital at Merrillville, but also one to be made known to the world of learning through a detailed analysis. One can be fairly certain that during this same period the Lapcourt schoolmaster was instructing the little villagers to mind their language and not talk about all these things abroad, or aloud. But this was undoubtedly one of the conditions enabling the institutions of knowledge and power to overlay this everyday bit of theater with their solemn discourse. So it was that our society, and it was doubtless the first in history to take such measures, assembled around these timeless gestures, these barely furtive pleasures between simple-minded adults and alert children, a whole machinery for speechifying, analyzing, and investigating. So let's unpack this. What Foucault is describing is, at the end of the day, an act of pedophilia. He is saying that there was this guy, full-grown man, but simple-minded. Notice his use there. What he's saying is this was somebody who was probably mentally disabled in some way. 
maybe on the autistic spectrum according to our discussion of it now, whatever, they did not have a classification for this person besides calling him simple-minded. That particular development has yet to occur. That will be more late 19th century stuff. This fellow, who, you know, everybody just sort of accepts as a part of the community, who can't hold down a decent job, but who people get to do their dirty work for him, or who, you know, people, like, will give their charity to him, like, he obviously can't hold down his own life, so people help him out, is what it comes down to. This guy, knowing no better, asks for some kind of sexual favor from a young girl. Something that we would, by today's lights, call pedophilia. But notice, too, the circumstances. The guy doesn't know what he's doing. This isn't an, a like deliberate or malicious act. This does not betoken some kind of horrible behavior. Foucault is characterizing him as though he saw the other kids doing it and thought that he should be able to as well. And the girl is apparently up for this. So whatever she does, whatever benefits this fellow enjo enjoys, the girl tells her parents, and suddenly this becomes a big deal. Foucault is phrasing this as though it probably happened many times before, and that may be his bias. Foucault may not have the best of intentions here, but again, we are doing some of Freud's work and we promised to leave him at the door, so let's not investigate too deeply into whatever motivations Foucault may have. If we take the story as told, and it doesn't seem like he's lying, he provides a decent citation, and this sounds totally legitimate as far as something that could have happened. You know, we've heard other stories to sort of corroborate our evidence and probably know from our own experience that this is not outside of the realm of possibility. What he is saying is, suddenly, at this moment in time, rather than something that has been observed many, many times, many times before, for hundreds and hundreds of years, whether good or bad, right or wrong, healthy or unhealthy, now it needs to be endlessly examined. Now, this guy is not just brought to court, but indicted, dice, like, his psychology and brain pan, like, every physical element of his is dissected by, you know, this doctor. He is committed to a mental institution and studied for the rest of his life as an abnormal behavior. Notice what this means. Something that used to be considered normal, something that used to be just sort of ignored by the community at large, again, for better or worse, now is not just taken notice of, but is studied extensively for the sake of science at large. When we talk about repression, what we're usually talking about is the refusal to acknowledge that these things exist. Foucault is describing the exact opposite phenomenon. We used to not acknowledge that these things exist, and as a consequence, let them happen. Now, we do acknowledge that these things exist, and we refused to let them happen. We will step on them so hard and so fast. And from this example, things accelerate dramatically. Notice that we have this description of the, you know, as, as he calls it on page 314, sex was driven out of hiding and constrained to lead a discursive existence. Everybody is talking about it. Rather than a massive censorship, he says at the bottom of page 315, beginning with the verbal proprieties imposed by the age of reason, what was involved was a regulated and polymorphous incitement to discourse. We are not, not talking about this. We are absolutely forcing everyone to talk about this. Not just in the confessional, 
where you know you get your penance and you go about your business and probably end up doing it again but now it's the state that's getting involved now it's the police that's getting involved now it's the medical establishment that's getting involved now this is something that we are very interested in as a culture and why is complicated now in the second section this the perverse implantation um Foucault sort of turns his attention from the transition to the sort of effects in the 19th century, the way that this is being expressed, and how this is sort of being manifested, so to speak. Um, one of the things that he is especially keen to mention is the surveillance involved. Um, there's a lot of discussion of surveillance here, not just in this sense of, you know, like, we have the, the whole discussion of this poor guy who, you know, just was doing what seemed to come naturally up, uh, for him and is now in a lot of trouble. But think of what he says about, like, the boarding schools even, even before this, um, where now, you know, we are building these schools so that someone is constantly watching these children all of the time, making sure that they do not perform sexual activities. You know, once upon a time, again, if kids were having sex, we didn't know about it, we didn't ask about it, we didn't care about it, we didn't talk about it. That's between you and the priest. Make sure you're honest with him. Now it's something that is endlessly discussed, rooted out. Um, but also note that like it's not possible to root this out. Like Foucault, Foucault is kind of amused by this, that we are not just talking about it endlessly, trying to stamp it out in a sense, but also kind of making it happen even more. Notice that he describes the, the sort of functions of power here, the, the sort of fourfold things that are happening as a consequence of all this surveillance, all this examination, all this discussion, so to speak. Um, first off, he says that, um, take the ancient prohibitions of consanguine marriages, as numerous and complex as they were, or the condemnation of adultery with its inevitable frequency or of occurrence, or on the other hand, the recent controls through which, since the 19th century, the sexuality of children has been subordinated and their solitary habits interfered with. It is clear that we are not dealing with one and the same power mechanism, not only because in the one case it is a question of law and penalty, and in the other, medicine and regimentation, but also because the tactics employed are not the same. On the surface, what appears in both cases is an effort at elimination that was always destined to fail and always constrained to begin again. Notice what he's suggesting there. We are interfering with people's lives, the adulterers, the children, the incestuous relationships. We are interfering with all of them. We need to know more about all of them. We are studying all of them and we are trying to stamp them out. But in some of these cases, the stamping out is fairly successful. So he says that, you know, as we are, as the prohibition of incests attempted to reach its objectives through an asymptotic decrease in the thing it condemned, you know, we forbid incest and the incests start to go away. Whereas the control of infantile sexuality hoped to reach it through a simultaneous propagation of its own power and of the object on which it was brought to bear. Meaning... Just as the confessor, once upon a time, was no longer interested in not in just, like, let's stamp out the sexual act, but let's stamp out the very desire, Foucault is pointing out that the power structures that are now in place governing kids having sex, like little kids engaging in some kind of sexual play, this is not just designed to stamp it out, but with the recognition that it can't. Like, they have to become sexual beings. They will have sex when they are grown up. If they don't, the species dies. Like, 
There is an insane objective here, but notice what it yields. With the assurance, with the telling, with the explanation that we need to watch our children, we need to carefully monitor their behavior, we cannot leave them alone and let them engage in this sexuality, there become all of these new calls to restrictions. We need more boarding schools, not less. We need more teachers engaging with the students more frequently. We need to make sure that they are all watched all the time. Um, this is an idea that Foucault has kicked around before, um, what he calls the panopticon. Um, in his discussion, Discipline and Punish, where he's describing the, the sort of architecture of prison systems, he mentions that the new design of prisons is to make sure that no prisoner has privacy at any moment. Um, the prisons are designed with a central sort of building with various cells radiating out from it so that a single person from their watchtower can see inside literally hundreds of prisoner cells at a given moment. That's the panopticon. The boarding schools are designed with the same principle in mind. All these kids are bunked together in central like barracks, which are easy to observe and prevent any hanky-panky from happening. We are interfering with their sex lives. That's what it's working as. But notice the two effects of this. On the one hand, it's never going to be successfully stamped out. It constantly increases more and more surveillance watch them in even more private places, prevent them from ever having any time to themselves, and at the same time there's a prurience to this. Because it's happening, because we are obsessed with the fact that our kids are having sex, that's why we need more preventative measures, and the more preventative measures we have, the more the preventative measures are telling us they're trying to have sex, so we need preventative measures. Like, it's this cycle, this spiral that Foucault is describing. We are thrilled to keep this power, this control. And as he describes in the next section, there's a joy to this. There's a pleasure in interfering with people's lives. In section three, he mentions this. Um, the medical examination, the psychiatric investigation, the pedagogical report in family controls may have the overall and apparent objective of saying no to all wayward or unproductive sexualities, but the fact is that they function as mechanisms with a double impetus, pleasure and power. The pleasure that comes of exercising, a power that questions, monitors, watches, spies, searches out, palpates, brings to light, and on the other hand, the pleasure that kindles at having to evade this power, flee from it, fool it, or travesty it. At the same time as the parents are enjoying this game of watching their children at every moment of every day, the children are also enjoying getting away from it. Sex becomes more forbidden, which makes it more exciting, which makes it more enticing, which makes them do it more, which makes the parents excited because it means that they need to have more power over them and watch them more carefully, which makes the sex more exciting, which makes the parents more... Like, it's sick what Foucault is describing here. Um, but it's also kind of natural. Like, that's the way parents and children kind of always work. There is this weirdness about it, this sort of, you know, joy of holding power over the people who are beneath you, while also the joy of evading and escaping the, the systems of power. Um, that's probably as informative to our own age as to what Foucault is describing here in the 19th century. Like, that's just part of how sex works, I think. 
the forbiddenness is part of the excitement of it, and the excitement of it yield, leads to people clamping down on it, which makes it more forbidden, which makes it more exciting. It's this endless cycle. Um, now, I also want to sort of jump back to, to part two, because this is also super important, um, especially in sort of our interpretation in this day and age. This new persecution of the peripheral sex sexualities entailed an incorporation of perversions and a new specification of individuals. As defined by the ancient civil or, canon or canonical codes, sodomy was a category of forbidden acts. Their perpetrator was nothing more than the juridical subject of them. The 19th century homosexual became a personage, a past, a case history, and a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, and a morphology with an indiscreet anatomy and possibly a mysterious physiology. Nothing that went into his total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. Now I should remark here, because Foucault assumes that you know this and you may not, Homosexuality as a term only exists since this period of time. It was an invention of the 19th century. It was a word that didn't have a place before. Like, nobody had said this. Um, as Foucault is sort of pointing at here, the way that people used to talk about homosexuality was in terms of sodomy. The act of, and I think that this, like, there is some confusion on this point, and various historical sources actually disagree about what sodomy includes, but it's basically anal penetration. Like, in any situation, male-female, male-male, whatever, sodomy is anal penetration. And there is, as Foucault has mentioned earlier on in the last chapter, some confusion about whether or not that's acceptable in a married environment. Um, again, like, people didn't talk about it. That was kind of the whole thing. Um, but notice, sodomy the act whether, you know, forbidden or not forbidden, whether between two men or between a man and a woman, whatever its situation in the culture, it was just an act. The idea that there are now not just sodomists, people guilty of committing sodomy, but homosexuals, people inclined to homosexuality, people inclined to sodomy, people who would rather commit sodomy than any other kind of thing, this makes an act, which under the Christian perspective is, you know, theoretically forgivable, like sodomy was bad, but not like the worst of all possible sins. Um, it doesn't even make the Ten Commandments, as we'll discuss next class. Um, sodomy may be bad, but it's also something that gets forgiven and then you go about your business. Like, it's a temporary thing. You had sodomy and now you're done, and then you go about being a perfectly good husband or father or whatever. Um, now, homosexuality implies not just that it's the person that's wrong and not the act, but that the person is tied into this whole personhood. That homosexuality isn't something that you do, it's something that you are and have always been. As Foucault says here, nothing that went into his total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. What we are building here is early identity politics in some sense. We are saying that this person, by nature of his constitution, nature or nurture, you know, events in their life that bring us up to this point, a history of past, his childhood, his contemporary adulthood, his adolescence, all of that, tie together to make him wrong. Homosexual. A medical diagnosis. A psycho psychological diagnosis. This is a sea change. 
this is where Freud is going to show up and start making diagnoses about the things that we do that we don't know that we are doing, the things that we want that we don't know that we want, the stuff hiding behind the conscious surface. This is why I stressed last lecture that this is a new idea, something that the ancients would not have agreed with or even thought to think of. Like, there is a direct line that can be drawn between the Christian confession and the assumption that, like, desire is also broken as well as the act itself to the psychoanalytic act of saying that a person doesn't know themselves. There is, like, this secret underlying idness that actually governs our acts and which are, which are all themselves based on sexual, you know, desires and urges. What Foucault is stressing here is that this is a major change, something that is manifesting this new power of discursion, this way that we are now endlessly talking about sexuality leads us to the place that we're now not just tying sexuality to acts, not just sort of evaluating the act on its own basis like the Catholic priests used to do in confession, but now we are tying it together, making it an illness, making it an aberration, and starting to compartmentalize people into these different aberrant sexualities. That's the key here, and that's what he's saying in part four. Whence those devices of sexual saturation so characteristic of the space and the social rituals of the 19th century, people often say that modern society has attempted to reduce sexuality to the couple, the heterosexual, and insofar as possible, legitimate couple. There are equal grounds for saying that it has, if not created, at least outfitted and made to proliferate groups with multiple elements and a circulating sexuality, a distribution of points of power hierarchized and placed opposite to one another, pursued pleasures, that is, both sought after and searched out, compartmental sexualities that are tolerated or encouraged, proximities that serve as surveillance procedures and function as mechanisms of intensification, contacts that operate as inductors. We are now compartmentalizing sexualities. We are chasing after them, trying to track them down and find out what's going on with them for both of our respective pleasure. Like the example that I think of just from my own experiences, I remember back when CSI, like the first CSI back in the 90s, started to air. And one of the things that drew people to it was it was very courageous in exploring alternative lifestyles and sexualities. And one of the biggest, most salacious episodes they did was on furry culture. Um, like this was the first time that furry culture had really been discussed in the mainstream, so far as I know. It was certainly the way that I was introduced to the existence of this. And it was presented as this, you know, deviant sexuality, that there are all these communities of people who dress up as furry animals and have sex with each other. Which is, like, if you hang out at all in the furry community, if you, like, investigate it even a little bit, like, it's not nearly as dark or scary as these people seem to make it out to be. Um, but what's significant is CSI was doing the exact same thing here that Foucault is talking about in the 19th century, compartmentalizing the sexuality, cordoning it off, saying, look, let's expose to daylight this sexual behavior that is a certain number of deviations from the norm, and therefore we can study it, we can examine it, but also be titillated by it, be excited by it, sort of question and be excited at the idea that there are all these people out there doing this horrible, horrible thing. Um, and at the same time, for the furry community, all of this press and excitement brought new members to the group, made it more exciting to sort of evade notice and surveillance. Like, the publicity of this act was part of the cycle of pleasure. 
the compartmentalization means that we feel good about exercising power over these monstrous deviants, but also the surveillance means that there is that same back and forth, that same I get pleasure out of watching these people and exerting my power over them, and they get pleasure out of avoiding that power and avoiding that surveillance. The trick here is that this is still going on. That's what I'm trying to drive home. We haven't repressed these groups. We have just disseminated them, cordoned them off, put them off all into separate boxes for the pleasure of both the, quote, normal people watching all this happening from the center of their panopticon, but also allowing these groups to enjoy the thrill of exposure and forbiddenness, that sort of dual-pronged sexuality. Um, to put it in a more 21st century light, there is a certain joy to be had at sticking it to the man, to flaunting your different sexuality, your, you know, separation, your nonconformity, your refusal to acknowledge gender norms. There is a joy to that, just as there is a joy in stepping on that gender norm, in, in this nonconformity, I should say. There is a joy for both the person who is sitting at home in their conservative household with their wife and 2.5 children saying, hmm, those kids these days and their weird sex nonsense. There's a joy to being right there, but there's also a joy in telling that guy to go suck it. Um, everyone wins is sort of what Foucault is getting at here, except for the fact that this is a system of control. And this becomes more obvious, like the people who are fighting back against these restrictive behaviors, who are sort of pushing back against these, you know, we should have transgender bathroom law stuff. Like, yes, there is a pleasure in fighting against the man, but it also kind of sucks when you are being kicked out of the bathroom and there's this whole police inquiry as a consequence. Remember the simple-minded guy whose life is torn apart as he's thrown into a mental asylum for something he didn't even know he was doing wrong. Suddenly, something mundane, something simple, can be dangerous. This is the threat I was talking about yesterday. This is the threat that's hanging over all of us in some sense. On the one hand, we do not want to become sexual deviants, to be subjected to that scrutiny, to have our lives turned over, and for everybody to know, you know, what it is that we are doing. But on the flip side, there is a certain joy, once you are outed, so to speak, in rejecting that and fighting back against it, which just makes that power structure more powerful in a sense. The dynamic that Foucault is illuminating here by sort of moving the discussion away from repression versus liberation means that we now have a more robust understanding of the way that sexuality is actually working, the complexity there. This repression conversation was the distraction away from this actual dynamic, these power structures that are in fact in place and that are largely ignored and left untalked about because the repression discussion takes so much of the conversation away. It's not as simple as good people, you know, liberate their sexuality versus bad people who control them. No, they are in a sense, mutually dependent on one another. They can only enjoy themselves in this context. If all of a sudden, all the people trying to control sexuality disappeared, there would, it would be a lot less fun to be sexually nonconformist, I suspect. But that's also not the whole story because it would in fact be easier to be sexually nonconformist. There would be less threat. There would be less people being killed for this. There would be less people de being denied health care for this. There would be less people, you know, getting their rights removed for this. 
It's complicated, is what Foucault is talking about. And there is power all over this place. Like, hang out in the trans community or in the queer community for any period of time, and you will find that they're not just a unified block against an authority that is fighting against them. No, they have massive, violent disagreements within their own ranks about what the queer community is, who counts as queer, and who does not. Like, bisexuals frequently argue that they are sort of discriminated against by more traditional gay and lesbian or transgendered queer folks because they can hide their activities better. And yet at the same time, they're sort of induced to hide their activities better because if you are forced to alienate both the queer community who thinks that you are taking the easy way out and the community that thinks that bisexuality is, you know, wrong in some way, then you have no friends left. Like, you have no allies. And as a consequence, the, the bisexuals are forced to kind of pick a side. Are they going to just be gay, or are they going to be just straight? In which case, they kind of have to abandon a group of people that they identify strongly with. Likewise, there's a lot of infighting between, like, the lesbian community and the traditional male gay community. Because the male gay community is more out, more sort of visible in the public sphere, and yet it was the lesbian community that did a lot of the hardest work in getting the queer community recognition and acknowledgement and what rights that they do have. Like, it's extremely complicated, and all of these interacting power structures have these dynamics of sort of restriction and pleasure from restriction, pleasure of lording something over someone, but also the pleasure of responding, fighting back against power. Like, it's immensely complicated. And Foucault is sort of trying to evaluate that. Again, not with some normative agenda in place. He's not saying, you know, this is bad, this is wrong. At worst, we can do what Rorty did and say it's kind of a downer um, to see all of this power being manifested in this way, to sh kind of show that we are all complicit in these various structures of power and control, as well as pleasure. Um, that's what makes this so complicated. Now, I already went long on this. I was hoping not to have to spend an hour and a half talking about Foucault and what he was getting at, because what I want to stress is his method. Notice what he is doing to get to this conclusion. Notice how he is systematically turning over all of these examples, all of these details, all of these texts at these important moments in history, focusing on these details, like these people who are hedging about, you know, we're going to talk about sex in a medical capacity. I'm sorry, it's so gross, but, you know, we have to talk about it. There is this compulsion issued from somewhere where Foucault is like, where is your compulsion coming from? And that's kind of the point. Um, he's examining how all of these behaviors, the architecture of the boarding schools, the papers published by these medical professionals, the you know way that the police reports are being issued, the way that individual peoples like the simple-minded farmer are being completely blown apart by all of these new institutionalized power structures, and he's looking at the effects, what that means for people, how they derive pleasure from it, how they enjoy their power, or how they sort of enforce their power on others, how that manifests, and what the effects are on the people who are, you know, just trying to have sex, whether they're being compartmentalized or sort of marginalized, as we like to call it, um, or whether they are, you know, enjoying this process in some weird kind of way. Um, it's complicated. It's endlessly complicated. And Foucault is controversial in the queer community. Like, notice not everything he says reads as, you know, queer people good, 
straight people bad or queer people good, straight people who try to control them are bad. Like, Foucault is saying that there is a certain amount of complicity here. And there is, question mark? Like, at the same time as the designation homosexual was this obviously disparaging term of mental, you know, diagnosis, this way of saying, you know, you are wrong and bad down to your very boots, like every part of you has contributed to make you this deviant behavior, this has also been a weapon in the arsenal of the queer movement. If you say that you can't help being homosexual, that every part of your psyche has contributed to this, then you can't blame me for being homosexual. Um, you can't say at the same time, you can't help what, who you are, but we're going to condemn you. You have to say, you know, if I can't help who I am, then you've got to let me do my thing. Um, then it's just a diagnosis. But notice how that works. That just does a compartmentalization. It's complicated. There are both benefits and negatives to saying, yes, I am. I am taking back the term, I am a homosexual. It does, in fact, restrict your freedom, like the way that it was intended to. But it is, at the same time, something that you can rally behind, something that you can say, yes, I am this, now give me my rights. There is no reason why you can restrict me. This is not my fault. Don't blame me. It's probably a major part of the reason why so much of the queer movement, especially in the 90s and 2000s, when it was trying to gain legitimacy and get the right to marry, was focused around, I was born this way and this sort of search for genetic components. This insistence that, you know, even in the trans community, so often it is expressed as, you know, I am a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. I, you know, can't help being what I am. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I'm saying that that's the way that our culture has sort of created to talk about this. It is the easiest avenue to describing one's experience, even if it isn't accurate. And most transgender folks will say, no, it is a glaring oversimplification to say, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. It only characterizes a sliver of my experience and perspective. But we just watching at home on our televisions, watching CSI's, you know, salacious discussion of the transgender movement, we just want the buzzword. We just want the quick and dirty version. We just need some kind of political statement that makes us feel sympathy instead of disgust. And if that means I can't help being who I am, then that'll work. That'll work in a pinch. But it's complicated. And not everybody is on the same page here. It is really, really tricksy. Um, so notice that Foucault is using all of these examples, all of these sources, all of these specific details to sort of create his picture of how, in fact, sexuality has changed. Because this is what we're doing in this class. Our scope is way larger. We're talking about love and not just sexuality, which means that we're going to be bumping into sexuality pretty frequently, but it's not going to be our explicit focus. And as I've suggested, I think love is actually way harder to talk about because it is way less concrete um, and has been, I suspect, more transformed over 2,500 years. Like, as dramatic as gender and sexuality may have, been may have been changed and perceived in the last 20 years, much less the last 100 years, love has been oh man, just wildly reinterpreted over and over and over again. Um, but we are going to do this. We're going to look at all of these various philosophers who are in their own time, writing about their own perspectives, writing about their own cultures in a sense, um, with maybe a blind spot to the cultures that have come before or after or are existing simultaneously in places they've never been. And we're going to try and dissect them and get a sense of what they are trying to say about sexuality. 
We are also going to need to contextualize this. And this is where Rorty kind of comes into it, which it's kind of bad that we left it for the last two minutes, but that's fine, whatever. Rorty argues that when philosophers do philosophy or a history of philosophy, not philosophy of history, that's something else. Um, when philosophers do history of philosophy, they tend to build their discussion in certain fairly predictable ways. And there are kind of two dimensions here one axis and one sort of compartment. On the one hand, philosophers tend to favor either a topical discussion or a historical discussion. By which word it means that a topical discussion is more like, hey, let's look at the history of love just from our perspective in the contemporary world and let's understand how each of these philosophers is contributing to our contemporary understanding of love using our language, our assumptions, our spaces. We want a 20th century British analytic philosopher to be able to have a productive conversation with Plato, the, you know, 5th century BC ancient Greek philosopher, and for them not to be talking past each other. So we have to sort of reshape Plato's ideas into a frame that our 20th century British analytic philosopher would recognize and be able to respond to. And there's kind of a violence that you inflict on a historical text when you do this. Plato didn't talk about love in the same way that the 20th century British analytic philosopher did, largely because Plato didn't even use the same words, the same language, he didn't have the same culture to draw from. They would very much talk past each other, and to sort of force Plato into contemporary boxes is to do an injustice to Plato. So the sort of response to this is the more historically minded history or philosophical historian. This is the sort of historian who is going to try and read Plato in his own time. Just ignore the entire history of philosophy springing off of Plato, and instead, what was Plato saying to Plato's people at Plato's time? Let us change us so we can understand Plato in his native element, rather than changing Plato so he can talk to us in our native element. These are the sort of two axes that we're dealing with, the two, the two poles of philosophy or history of philosophy. There's some philosophy of history in here too, honestly. It is extremely confusing. Um, sorry about that. Suffice it to say that what Foucault is doing is more trying to understand the history in its own time than trying to understand our philosophy at this moment in time. Like, yes, there are definitely applications here. Um, but Foucault is erring on the side of let's understand what these people were thinking at their own time because we've kind of lost sight of that and by losing sight of that we've lost the ability to understand these people in their own time and understand us and ours. Um, which brings us to Foucault, uh, the Geist Geschichte, the phenomenology. Um, according to Rorty, this whole business of phenomenology is sort of starting from that historical perspective. The let's understand these philosophers on their own terms and then building a story out of that. Doing a little bit of violence to each individual philosopher in order to have Plato talk to Aristotle and Aristotle talk to, say, you know, Ovid and Cicero, and Cicero talk to Augustine, and Augustine talk to Aquinas, and Aquinas talk to Descartes, and Descartes talk to Hume, and Hume talk to Nietzsche, and Nietzsche talk to us. Um, if we tell the story, in this way, we are doing a limited amount of injustice to any given philosopher, but we also get to see that philosopher's contribution to the whole sweep of history. Now, it's still a distortion, and Rorty wants to stress this. It's just an effort to make that distortion slight. It is a way of sort of 
turning the entire history of philosophy, which is giant and messy and sprawling and complicated and frequently does not make any sense and doesn't have philosophers talking to each other but frequently talking past each other or philosophers misunderstanding one another or philosophers showing up, responding to some people and being ignored for 150 years. Like, all of this happens all of the time. So tying it together as though it's one consistent linear narrative is definitely a distortion of some kind. But Rorty still insists that this is useful. Geistergeschichte, phenomenology, whatever you want to call it, this is useful. Um, this is helpful. So Foucault is, while sort of distorting the history of philosophy to suit his polemical narrational ends, to tell his story about how, no, we are not actually repressed, we're actually talking ourselves to death on sexuality, and this is in fact part of the tool of power and control that we're executing. You know, it's, it's a different story, but it's still a story, and it's still not entirely true, and he's still sanding off the rough edges to make all of the pieces fit together in this nice, consistent, comfortable way. Um, Rorty also describes a fourth category, which we're not going to deal with in here, because I, it, he hates it, and I hate it, and I think Samuel, or Simon May, the guy who I kicked out of curriculum, is kind of guilty of doing it. Um, I believe he calls it doxography, which is basically like, we're going to do a story, but we're going to end, like look at it purely from a topically, distorting all these philosophers to, to suit our polemical ends. Um, like, I'm going to start with an idea of what love is in mind, and then make Plato agree with me, and Aristotle agree with me, and Hume agree with me, and Augustine agree. Like, everybody's going to fit into my development of this philosophical idea. I'm either going to call people out as being wrong about this in their own time and then say why they're wrong and why their culture sort of caused them to be wrong and then work our way to, you know, here is the true answer as presented by me, the only person who can see everything clearly. Um, Rorty is disgusted by this and he wants it to stop and as a consequence we're not going to do a lot of this. But what we are going to do is what Foucault was doing. We are going to look at the whole history of philosophy and try and understand each writer as much as we can, given our time constraints, in their own time, according to their own cultural moments and perspectives. So we're going to have a lot of hist history in this class, in addition to the philosophy. We need to talk what, about what was going on in ancient Greece when Plato and Aristotle were writing. And we need to know why that's different from the world of ancient Rome when Cicero and Ovid are writing. And how that is also changed by the advent of Christianity and how Christianity bumps up against Rome and becomes its own thing and the persons of Augustine and the med medieval tradition. Like, we need to track every step of the way. Which means at least a decent chunk of pretty much all of our lectures are going to be devoted to history as much as they're going to be devoted to philosophy. Because we don't have a history book, because I, you know, don't want you to spend your time reading that when this is essentially an intro to philosophy course, I will try and provide you as much context as I can. And you will need to use that context with the philosophy you're reading to sort of synthesize an understanding of what this philosopher is getting at and what this actual view of love was so we can move on to the next thing, the next philosopher, the next historical moment, and the changes that that imply, so we can start to piece together this whole story, insofar as there is a story to be presented. Um, so when we talk about historiography, this is what we're talking about. How do we understand our history? How do we put the pieces together? How do we craft the story of where we've been in order to understand how we've come here? Um, and then, as Foucault is doing, sort of asking the unasked question, what do we do now? How do we change it if we want to? How do we fix the things that are broken? And which things are, for that matter, broken? So for next week, we are going to start 
with the Old Testament. Um, it's obviously super important to the New Testament, to the whole sweep of Christianity, as well as being the central text of Judaism. Um, we obviously can't read the whole dang thing. It is huge. Um, so I have prepared a series of excerpts, which are all on the Canvas page. Um, read those, and we will talk about the Old Testament's attitude towards sex, towards love, how God fits into this whole equation. It should be quite a complicated conversation. And feel free, like if you were listening to this and you were preparing to come to class for the next session, feel free to come prepared to ask uncomfortable questions. Um, I want to clear the air on this. Like, we're going to talk about Christianity and love, which means we're going to talk about Christianity and sex. For a good bit of this class, we better dispel some of our illusions pretty early and talk about what the Christians and Jews actually believe about sexuality, abortion, homosexuality. Like, all of this we got to talk about. So come prepared for some really crazy, controversial conversation. Alliteration unintended. Bye!